few among us grapple daily with the reality that the Earth is but a speck of dust in the universe. And perhaps even fewer would think much about the world beyond our world, the vast, largely uncharted expanse we call space. As an astronomer and astrophysicist, however, Dr. Sharon looks to the stars to push the frontiers of our knowledge about the universe and to map the world beyond. Today, we're very honoured to have Assistant Professor Chelsea Sharon on the show to share with us what she has gathered from years of research on space, stars and supermassive black holes. Dr. Chelsea Sharon is Assistant Professor with the Physics Department at Yale Nurse College. She completed her Bachelor's in Astrophysics at the California Institute of Technology and a PhD at Rutgers deals with the molecular gas content of dusty galaxies in the early universe. She previously worked as a postdoctoral research associate at the Cornell Center for Astrophysics and Planetary Science and at McMaster University prior to joining UNS College. She has published numerous research papers with journals such as the Astrophysical Journal, which are linked to in the episode description. Thank you for joining us on the show, Professor. Um, would you mind giving us a glimpse into your research interests? Yeah, sure. So um, basically, I study baby galaxies with a bad case of gas. And when baby galaxies have a bad case of gas, they tend to fart stars in, in large quantities. So a normal galaxy like our own Milky Way, which is sort of a middle-aged galaxy, uh, converts gas into the stars uh, at the rate of about one sun per year. So sometimes maybe it'll wait a couple years and make things a few times more massive than the sun. And sometimes it'll make a few things that are smaller than the sun at the same time. But about one sun per year is average. Now these galaxies, these baby galaxies that I study in the early universe, so we're looking back in cosmic history, something like 10 billion years, they're forming stars at the rate to hundreds to thousands of suns per year. And we really want to understand why that is. Is it just because during that period of cosmic history, there's more gas around to fuel this star formation? Is it uh, because the process of star formation is somehow fundamentally different because maybe galaxies are colliding into each other at a much higher rate back then? Uh, we don't really know. So that's one of the things I'm interested in. And sort of the flip side of that is how does this period of rapid star formation end? Because for these galaxies where we see these really, really high star formation rates, uh, they would exhaust their entire gas supply for making stars quite quickly. And the population of galaxies that we would see today in the nearby universe would look very, very different. And so this means that the star formation has to be kind of slowed down or stopped at a much earlier stage. And one of the methods that we're considering for doing that is uh, what is that the central supermassive black holes in the middles of galaxies can uh, be a very high energy source in these systems and those central supermassive black holes may play a role in sort of quenching star formation in these galaxies. And so figuring out how this rapid period of, of stellar growth ends is one of the other sort of research areas I'm focused on. Mm. And what exactly are these uh, supermassive black holes like? Um, and what do we know about them? So supermassive black holes are just sort of one category of a, a whole class of different types of, of black holes. So um, black holes are, generally speaking, uh, they're infinitely deep holes, basically, in the fabric of space-time. So if you tend to kind of reduce the universe from sort of the 3D volume that we're used to thinking about to like a 2D sheet, 
and he made the universe sort of like stretchy, so maybe like a surface of a trampoline or some big sheet of rubber. If you put something with mass on it, it will curve that sheet. And that sheet ends up is, the curvature of that sheet is very much like the curvature of space-time that we have due to, to masses uh, around the universe. Now, if you get something that is uh, extraordinarily massive and very, very dense, so you have a lot of mass compact into a very small space, you basically end up making that hole like infinitely deep with like infinitely steep walls. And that those walls are so steep that there's basically no amount of energy that can make anything escape it. And that's why black holes are this area where even light cannot escape. You know, light has this fundamental speed limit. Nothing can go faster than that. And so therefore nothing can have, you know, enough energy and enough speed to actually escape this region around black holes. Now, black holes can come in a range of masses. The more common ones that we study are, are stellar mass black holes. So these are the endpoints of very massive stars. So if they exhaust all of their hydrogen and helium and heavier elements to fuse to kind of support the weight of the star, the star will collapse in on itself and form a stellar mass black hole. So these things are usually on the order of, you know, a couple times more massive than our own sun. And uh, the really famous ones that have been studied recently with the detection of gravitational waves by LIGO, those are a few tens or maybe 20 solar masses each. Now at the opposite end of the scale are the supermassive black holes. The supermassive black holes are millions to billions of times more massive than our sun. And one of these exists at the center of every single galaxy that we know of. So our own galaxy has a supermassive black hole at the middle, we call it Sagittarius A star. Um, where these supermassive black holes come from, that's a, an area of, of active research. I don't particularly study that, but we, we really don't know where those come from. And what sort of effects do they exert on the environment? So just like anything that has mass, uh, a black hole will interact with their environment gravitationally. So much like the Earth can orbit around the sun, you can have things in stable orbits around black holes as well. And this is actually, uh, some of the best evidence for our supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy is we can look at the orbits of stars in the very center of the system and they're very clearly orbiting a very massive object there, but that object is not emitting any light. So gravitation is the primary way in which black holes will interact with their environment. It's, uh, in my case, uh, the more interesting process for black holes is that when uh, gas, the fuel that should be forming stars, gets uh, gravitationally attracted to fall in towards the black hole, it usually falls in in a disk because stuff has angular momentum. So it's the same reason why, you know, angular momentum is the same process where if you have like a figure skater with her arms are, are out, she rotates more slowly and she brings her arms in and the figure skater will rotate more rapidly. Similarly, gas doesn't fall straight into a black hole. It usually falls in at an angle, so it has some of this angular momentum. And so this disk of material that is sort of falling into the black hole uh, it gets very, very hot because of uh, the energy it takes from moving very far away to getting very close. So if you, you know, took high school physics, there's this whole you know, conservation of energy idea where if you take uh, some book and you raise it up to some height, it has some gravitational potential energy and you let it go and then when it hits the ground, all of that potential energy is converted into kinetic motion. 
And so similarly for the gas falling into these supermassive black holes, they're moving, it's moving very, very fast. And so all the particles of gas are hitting into each other, which makes it hot. And so it glows. So that means this gas that's accreting onto supermassive black holes in these baby galaxies in the early universe uh, is, is very, very bright. So we know about these AGN, uh, these, these, sorry, active galactic nuclei, these accreting supermassive black holes, you know, because they're very bright, which is sort of a contradiction from what you would think for a black hole being this thing that does not emit at all. Certainly the black hole does not emit, but the accretion disk does emit. And so oftentimes what I'm doing is I'm looking for signatures of these very hot accretion disks in these uh, galaxies in the early universe to see if the energy of those disks could potentially, you know, put some pressure on the gas that is forming stars and might affect their s these galaxy star formation rates. And um, how exactly do you know about all these effects? And more specifically, um, what are the instruments that you would use to understand these phenomena? So it depends on what phenomena that you're interested in. Uh, that dictates what sort of telescope you use. Because if you're interested in really high energy phenomena, you might use an X-ray telescope. Or if you're interested in very uh, low energy, sort of colder gas, which is what I do, you tend to use radio telescopes. So what I use are uh, mostly two sets of radio telescopes. One is called the Carl G. Jansky Very Large Array, which is a, an array of telescopes in the New Mexico desert in the United States. Uh, so if you ever saw the classic uh, science fiction movie Contact that was written by Carl Sagan, it's probably pretty old for most people these days. It's the array of uh, telescopes that uh, the main character uses out in the desert. Uh, and then there's another array that I use that's much more new. It's uh, only been around for about five years now, and that's called the uh, mouthful Atacama Large Millimeter Slash Submillimeter Array, also known as ALMA for short. Um, and yeah, astronomers are really terrible at naming things sometimes. But this is an array of telescopes that's in the Atacama Desert in, in Chile. Uh, and so we use these arrays of radio telescopes that kind of synchronize together so that we can map sort of the cold gas in these galaxies. And it's this gas that fuels star formation that I study. And speaking of radio telescopes, um, there's news recently of um, fast radio bursts from distant galaxies, um, and, and this is really making waves on the internet. Um, so, so could you just tell us a little bit more about um, where these radio bursts might come from, and is there a precedent to these signals? Sure. So uh, fast radio bursts, or FRBs, if I, if I move into the, the shorthand quickly, uh, are basically extremely short, high-energy pulses that we see in the radio. So these are uh, microsecond-long pulses, so extraordinarily short. Um, and we see them distributed all over the sky, going off at sort of random times. And since they're all over the sky, we know that they have to be coming from places outside of our galaxy. So that light has to be traveled pretty far to get to us. And even though when we see the light, it's only about as bright as sort of the signal from a cell phone on the moon, for it to have traveled between galaxies, this means it had to have been a, an extraordinary, energetic, very short-lived cataclysmic event. And we see sort of similar signals from this class of objects that are called pulsars. So pulsars are also an end state for certain masses of stars when they can't you know, hold themselves up with their, their own fusion energy anymore and they gravitationally collapse. 
occasionally, you know, the magnetic field that the stars have will still exist. And so what will happen is the magnetic field, as these rapidly rotating stellar remnants spin around, will occasionally sweep into our line of sight. And so pulsars will kind of act like a, you can think of them as like a lighthouse. And every now and then it points at us the right way, so we see a periodic signal. So a fast radio burst kind of looks like a single pulse from a pulsar. So we actually have no idea what these fast radio bursts are right now because they kind of look like pulsar, single pulses from a pulsar. We have some suspicion that maybe they're from a stellar remnant where they only exhaust all of their sort of magnetic energy in one go. They could be from, you know, quakes from very high magnet magnetized um, stars called magnetars. Again, creative names in astronomy. Uh, we absolutely have no idea. People have even proposed that, you know, this could be a signal from, uh, from aliens powering uh, light sails. So if you know about the, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name of this particular uh, project right now, but uh, this, this proposal to make small uh, robotic missions to other solar systems by making these little tiny robots that have little sails on them and then we shoot a laser beam at the sail and that slowly accelerates this little robot so that way it can go outside of the solar system. Now if these uh, aliens are doing a similar sort of thing these little uh, pulses might actually be their pulses powering their 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 light sails but that's sort of a an out there explanation, but people have done the math and apparently it kind of works out. So, you know, but we really have no idea at this point what, what exactly they are. <laughs> That's so fascinating. And, and, and in a recent um, Guardian article, you know, Joe Dunkley writes, astronomy is in the middle of a data revolution, a time of enormous discovery. So for many of us who are unfamiliar with astronomy and astrophysics, um, what's on the horizon for us? Well, so in astronomy, you know, the, everything we tend to study is extraordinarily dim. So basically the more photons we can get from an object, the better. So right now we're, we're constantly in a quest to you know, get basically bigger telescopes, so basically larger light buckets to collect the photons from the sky, or just to basically integrate on the sky for longer, so to expose for a longer period of time. So there are great new telescopes like uh, LSST, the Large Syn Synoptic something or other telescope. I don't remember the acronym, sorry. It's not exactly my uh, sub-discipline. Uh, but the LSST will be taking maps of the entire sky uh, every three or four nights in completely different colors of light. And this will be a huge data set that people are really excited about in, in astronomy for these sort of time domain astrophysics. So finding things sort of like the optical equivalent of the fast radio bursts we were just uh, discovering. So like uh, data science and machine learning are, are a really big deal in, in modern astronomy research right now because we have these ginormous data sets that's just impossible for a single human to sift through by eye. We have to rely on the computers to make it faster. In my own field, you know, ALMA, this new radio telescope uh, in Chile, is, is definitely revolutionizing the field. We can now, you know, before we could only really study these, the, the most massive uh, of these uh, baby galaxies in the early universe because the, the more massive they are, basically, the brighter they are. So we're kind of like screamy, uh, skimming the, the cream off of the top. But now that we've got this much more sensitive telescope, we can actually start studying these lower mass galaxies that are more typical 
for the galaxies or more typical um, precursors to the galaxies that we see today. So that's really changing things. And it's also doing great things for the study of the formation of solar systems. There's been some really recent, like beautiful work mapping out baby solar systems as they're still forming uh, with Alma. And so, you know, we're, we have so much data in astronomy these days that we, we always really need people, especially people with some computer science preparation to, to, to get into the field and help us with all this excellent data that we have. Thank you, Professor. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks. It was uh, great to be here. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to UNS After Hours. This episode is written and hosted by Austin Ng from Class of 2021, edited by Rena Ng from Class of 2022. The music that you hear is from Nico Nazareth of 2022, and we've received technical assistance from Mr. Adi Sofian bin Salim from ERT. Once again, if you'd like to learn more about Professor Sharon and her work, the link in the description will bring you to her bio. If you enjoy our podcast, consider subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. We will be back next week with a new episode. See you!